This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Thant Mient U. Thant is an award-winning writer and historian who has a new book titled The Hidden History of Burma, Race, Capitalism and the Crisis of Democracy in the 21st Century. He spent over a decade in the United Nations, including in peacekeeping operations in Cambodia and in the Balkans. And he was an advisor to the Burmese government during the early years of Myanmar's transition from military dictatorship. In my opinion, Myanmar is a part of the world that doesn't get talked about enough. It's really fascinating. And in The Hidden History of Burma, Thant argues that Myanmar is a, or Burma as he calls it, is a microcosm of all the world's problems. The crisis of representative democracy, the rise of populism and ethno-nationalism, and the corrosive impact of social media. It's a fascinating conversation. It's moderated by Roz Irwin of the Sunday Times. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode. For those of our listeners who are in London, we want to flag up an event that we're staging. On Tuesday, the 17th of March, we have Jim Al-Khalili. Jim Al-Khalili is one of the nation's best-known broadcasters and physicists. And we're staging an event with him titled The World According to Physics. And it's all about why physics matters, what can the study of physics, of energy, force, matter, and the behavior of matter through space and time, what can that teach us about the universe? And what can that teach us about the nature of reality itself? Jim will be appearing in conversation with another physicist, Helen Zersky. She's one of the UK's most popular science presenters. And they will be appearing in conversation at Church House in Westminster. Like I said, that'll be on Tuesday, the 17th of March. And we look forward to seeing you there. If you'd like to buy tickets, please do so on our website, intelligencesquared.com. Hello, I'm Ros Irwin, a journalist for the Sunday Times, and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, Thant Mian, too. Thank you very much. I'd like to start, just so that we've got this covered from an early point, on, on the question of names, and it is actually where you sort of start your book, Burma versus Myanmar, which is what we tend to talk about the country as now. Why is it that you've chosen to call it the hidden history of Burma? I suppose it's just a personal preference. I mean, on the one hand, Myanmar is the name that the military regime about 25 years ago changed the country of the name in English too. But it's always been Myanmar in Burmese. And the change in the English name was part of a kind of an attempt by the government at the time, the military junta at the time, to sort of reinforce a nativist view of things and insist on the Burmese pronunciation of everything. So that's not something that I particularly like. But but more than anything else, I just think Burma sounds a lot nicer in English. So I've used it. I've always used it in my books, and I've, I've used it for this book as well. The sort of overarching argument in your book is that Burma is a microcosm of all the world's problems. So populism, inequality, ethno-nationalism. And you say that it's sort of giving us a sort of warning to the world of, of what could come elsewhere. Um, how did you come about thinking of it like that? Well, I mean, I think when people think of Burma, they thought for a long time of, of this country, a faraway country, where there was this sort of contest between Aung San Suu Kyi as the leader of a, of a democratic opposition and the Burmese generals at the time. And then more recently, people see Burma through the prism of the Rohingya crisis and ethnic cleansing and expulsion of hundreds of thousands of people. But in a way, as you say, I mean, in Burma, we have this kind of weird, faraway stage of all of these issues that we're talking about everywhere in the world today, inequality, climate change, populism, and everything else. And it's a warning in this way, because a 100 years ago, when modern politics began in Burma for the first time, 
Burma was in the midst of a kind of identity politics and the rise of a kind of ethno-nationalism and populism of people who were afraid of migration, people who felt that global capitalism had not treated them well and wanted in a way to, to resist or to return to an earlier time. And all of that was very understandable. But what happened in the end, after a few decades, was that Burma not only retreated from the rest of the world, but it lapsed into this kind of nativism that then threw up an enormous amount of conflict internally, and then led Burma down this road of poverty, both intellectual poverty and material poverty as well. So we've we've had this kind of populist moment 70, 80, 90 years ago, and the past 70, 80, 90 years have not been very good as a result. Would you say that they were sort of engulfed with a form of identity politics before it would even have been, of course, defined as that? That's quite a modern concept. Um, how did that manifest itself? I mean, I guess we have to go back a little bit in time. So Burma, by the beginning of the 20th century, was was very much part of, of the British Empire, and it was part of British India, and it was a province of British India. So unlike Ceylon or Sri Lanka, it was actually a province in the same way as Bengal or, or Gujarat or, or the Punjab. And it was held as a, as a British possession, but it was also a place where British companies were making huge amounts of money through the export of natural resources, oil, timber, as well as, as rice. And for that, these British companies needed millions of migrant laborers. And so Burma became a place where millions of people from the rest of British India, so India, Bangladesh, Pakistan today, and places like Rangoon went from being perhaps a few percent Indian to 65, 70% Indian by the 1920s. In the 1920s, Rangoon rivaled New York as the biggest immigrant port in the world. And so when modern politics was born in the 20s, part of this was couched as a sort of anti-imperialist, anti-colonial movement. But to some extent, it was about an attempt to assert a Burmese racial ethnic identity contra these um, immigrants from India. I think many of our listeners may feel that Burma is a country they know surprisingly little about compared with the rest of the world. George Orwell was a policeman in Burma in the 1920s and he categorised, and I wondered how accurate you think this categorization is, he said the British are robbing and pilfering Burma quite shamelessly. Was that what the colonial period was like and, and even towards the end of it. Yeah, I think that was a big part of it. I mean, in a way, you know, I think Britain annexed Burma accidentally in the, in the sense that it wasn't part of a grand strategic design from the beginning. I think Burma was important militarily because it was where India bordered China. But once the British occupied Burma and got rid of the king and, and consolidated colonial rule, and that was a very bloody consolidation back in the 1880s and 1890s, it found a place which became very profitable for a lot of companies, including companies like Burma Oil, which then spawned um, British Petroleum uh, by the 1920s. And um, the Burmese, the ordinary Burmese person, wound up at the bottom not only of this new sort of racial hierarchy, but of this new political economy as well. So you had European firms at the top, then you had Indian and Chinese companies, firms, a new sort of business class that was mostly European or Indian or Chinese. And then you had you know, millions of ordinary Burmese villagers kind of at the bottom of this new social pyramid. You mentioned the Indian population coming in. And of course, there you're talking about the, the wealthier members of that. There were also obviously a lot of migrant laborers who were very, very poor. What impact did they have? It was, yeah, it was a mix. So at the top, you had, you know, sort of wealthy merchants, and then you had professionals who came in, bureaucrats as well. And you had a lot of Indians who, you know, for whom, in the words of one Indian family, this was their first America, the place that they went to kind of reinvent themselves, new opportunity, a new life. And, and many of them did extremely well. And, and some still are there after generations. But the vast bulk of people who came from India, I would say 90, 95%, were extremely poor indentured laborers, people who came um, because British companies needed them to be seasonal laborers or dock workers. So they formed the new kind of working class. And that was okay up to a point. But once the Great Depression hit and jobs became scarce, it was this Indian, new Indian working class that was basically set off against poor Burmese who then wanted their jobs in, especially in cities like Rangoon. So the vast bulk were extremely poor Indians from Bengal, from South India. And some of them went home eventually, but many of them stayed. And so in the 1920s, I think up to 2 million a year were coming into Burma, which was a country at that time of about 13 million people. 
And you talked a little bit there about um, the sort of colonial thinking around race. How much was that sort of racial hierarchy created by the British? I mean, it's not that the Burmese didn't have sort of a conception of different peoples in the world, and they did, but a kind of more modern sense of, of racism or race as a, sci- as a scientific concept and, and there being a hierarchy of races, that was new and that was something that was imported uh, in British times. And so if you look at the census uh, records that go back to 1861, 1871, you see a lot of commentary in those records trying to, trying really hard to make sense of what the racial landscape in, in Burma, which was a new possession, really was. Who are these people? How are they similar to people in India? Were they actually more similar to Tibetans or Chinese or other people? And then categorizing all the different peoples that they found in the country, because Burma is a place of dozens of different languages. And so a lot of British ethnographers, administrators worked really hard to try to put people into these ethnic boxes and then to determine, you know, who really belonged to this country, who were indigenous and who were people, alien people who came from from elsewhere. So it wasn't a set thing, but it was this idea of people as belonging to one immutable race or another and as part of a kind of a of an overall design that was very much something that came up during colonial times and that i think the burmese kind of internalized and and it became part of burmese thinking of things by the 1920s and i want to come to the end of the colonial period next what was the impact of the end of colonialism i think the difference between you know burma and, and many other parts of of the british empire in asia was that British rule in Burma collapsed almost overnight when the Japanese invaded over the winter of 1941 to 1942. So the British exiled the last king of Burma in 1885. The Japanese came in 1942. So actually British rule lasted, you know, within the living memory of, of people. And the British came back in 1945 after basically a, a, a terrible war in the country, which actually destroyed Burma more than any other part of, of Asia. So every single port, airport, factory, oil refinery, town other than Rangoon was utterly destroyed in World War II. The Allies came back in 1945. By 1948, the British had quit Burma. And so Burma became independent in 1948, but in a situation of economic ruin. And as a country that was awash in weapons from World War II, with this kind of race thinking intact as a country of many different races and ethnic groups, and with a new nationalist movement that really wanted to take the country in a very solid left-wing direction. And all of that combined was a recipe for the civil war that came very quickly and that has lasted all of these seven decades. And your own links to Burma, you first visited in December 1974. What was it that brought, brought you there? So I was born actually in, in New York in, in 1966. And I was born because my parents, who were both Burmese, met there in uh, the late 50s. And my grandfather, Uthant, had been the Burmese ambassador in New York and later became the Secretary General of the UN. And he served in the UN through the 1960s. So we all lived in one house together just outside New York. And he died in 1974, a few years after he retired. And my parents decided that I should go with them to to bury my grandfather in, in Rangoon. But that actually led to, it was a time of, it was sort of at the peak of the, the old military dictatorship. And it was, uh, it led immediately to anti-government, uh, not immediately, but after a couple of weeks to anti-government demonstrations around his burial. So that was my sort of introduction to Burmese politics. And your impressions of the country at that point, obviously you're quite young, but what were they? Yeah, I was eight years old and everything was, you know, so different from, from what I knew in, in New York, starting from the weather, the humidity, the heat. I remember seeing the, the Shwedagon pagoda, my relatives. In some ways, everything was very familiar because I grew up in a, in a Burmese household speaking Burmese. And it was this weird thing where, where the life of inside the house had suddenly become everything. So the food that I was used to eating at home, the, the clothes that I was used to seeing people wear at home suddenly became everywhere in this, in this big city of Rangoon. And so I remember that. I remember a little bit of, I didn't see the violence at the time, the, I mean, the killing of demonstrators and everything else, but I remember the big crowds. And I just remember a country that felt kind of on edge even then because when we were there it was at the beginning of this dem- these demonstrations and really just on the on the eve of the violence that was going to come afterwards now come 1982 this new citizenship law came in and you've 
stated in the book that it's not true at that point, even though that's often reported, that the Rohingya were then stripped of their citizenship at that point. What did that new law mean, though? Basically, the one of the issues, and this was a hangover from, from the colonial period, was this question of whether or not people who were who were or who were seen to be of Indian descent primarily, but also Chinese, but mainly Indian descent, did they really belong to the country and could they be citizens? And many had opted not to become citizens and, and went home. Others didn't want to be citizens because they wanted to keep their Indian citizenship and, and stayed on. But in 1982, General Ne Win, who was the, the dictator at the time, came up with this law, which was meant to be, I guess, from his point of view, a kind of compromise where people who were seen as indigenous, and again, this goes back to a, a colonial way of thinking, who were seen as indigenous were more or less automatically citizens. But people who were seen as immigrants or descendants of immigrants could only become full citizens by the third generation. So that was a law. And if you look at the Muslim Rohingya people in Western uh, Burma, almost all of them today are at least third generation. Even if you consider some of them to be descended from immigrants from British times, uh, they would be at least third generation by now in 2020. So it's not really the law itself. It's the way in which discrimination, implementation of laws, the the ways in which laws haven't been implemented. It's the practice. It's the day-to-day kind of discrimination and brutality. It's not really the law itself that has caused many of the problems since that time. You say there was a turning point in 1988, so six years later. So when we get student anti-government demonstrations, what what did that mean for the country that moment? So basically, you know, Burma had been at civil war since 1948, since independence. Over the 1950s, this big army machine grew up to fight that civil war. By 1962, the army felt confident enough that they took over a government entirely in a, in a coup. And that wasn't very strange because Korea, Thailand, Pakistan, many countries in Asia were under military dictatorships. Burma, since independence, and this is also a colonial legacy, was under one or another left-wing movement. So politics in Burma from 1948 until 1988 was the domain of different kind of left-wing movements, socialist and, and communist. In 1988, that army-backed Burmese socialist regime collapsed under the weight of massive popular demonstrations. And this was almost around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so the call of ordinary people on the streets at the time was for democracy. And that democracy uprising was crushed. And that led later to the formation of this National League for Democracy and the, com- the coming to sort of prominence of, of Aung San Suu Kyi. And when did you next come back to Burma? So that summer, the summer of 1988, I had just finished at university and I was interning at a think tank in Geneva. And I was listening on on the radio, actually at the home of of a man named Sir Peter Smithers, who was the real-life role model for James Bond. And we were listening to the shortwave on the BBC, and it said there were demonstrations in Burma. It looked like the government was going to collapse. And it was very exciting. I thought there was going to be a revolution, a pro-democracy revolution. So I I quit my internship, uh, flew to Bangkok, where my parents were living at the time, tried to get back into Rangoon. But the day that I was meant to to go back, which is the 5th of September, I think, was the day that a general strike shut down the airport. So I was trapped in, in Bangkok. But then a couple of weeks later, when the army crushed the demonstrations, hundreds and then thousands of Burmese student dissidents came to the Burmese-Thai border in the hope that they would get arms and could start an armed movement against the military regime. And so I joined them. So I spent a year helping them in different ways on the border, I helped asylum seekers and others in Bangkok as well. And so that was my, my real introduction, I suppose, to Burmese politics. What did your parents make of that, you being there? Well, they the were actually very supportive because, I mean, I think th- this was a time when people were so angry at, at the military regime, so angry that they had crushed this pro-democracy uprising after a period of you know, a couple of months where people were really hopeful that the country was going to, to turn the corner in a very dramatic way. And so they actually housed uh, at our, you know, at our flat in in Bangkok, dozens and dozens of these students, and and tried they as, as well tried to support them in in every way possible at that time. So tell me what happens next. So what happens next is you know, t- I mean, two things. One is you had this old Burmese socialist regime, army backed collapse, 
you had a new military junta take over. You had the old military dictator, General Ne Win, take a back seat and begin to retire. You had the beginning of the story that's very familiar here in the UK of then this military junta against Aung San Suu Kyi, who was then often locked up, put under house arrest for, for years at a time. And from the outside, it just looked like that was the picture for 20 years, right? Aung San Suu Kyi, other political distance versus this junta. In reality, there was two other things happening. The first was that with the collapse of Burmese socialism came the end of the country's isolation. And even though there were Western sanctions, the country became much more integrated with the rest of the region, in particular with China, which was opening up at the same time. And secondly, the country moved from a socialist regime of sorts to a capitalist system. And that capitalist system, that capitalist economic system, became a very strange capitalist system. It was intimately tied to China because it was under Western sanctions. It wasn't linked to global markets. Because ceasefires were organized with many of the different armed groups that were in the country, they became very much tied to that ceasefire economy as well. And in the beginning, at least, it was very much tied to all these illicit industries in the country, multi-billion dollar at that time, heroin industries, for example. And that economic system, that strange capitalist system that was born in the ashes of the uprising in 1988, is very much the economic system we still have today. You do say, though, that there's something that jars between the sort of viewpoints of ordinary Burmese people and the consumerism that is growing. What is that tension? Well, I think, I mean, for about 20 years, this economic system was good for a few people at the very top. It led to an enormous amount of inequality. So the Burmese socialist regime, the old army socialist regime, was inept and failed in many ways. But society in 1988-89 was still quite equal in the sense that everyone was poor together, almost no one was rich. By the 1990s and 2000s, you had many people become rich at the top, and then you had the vast bulk of people left behind. You had a huge amount of environmental destruction caused by this new economic system. And then you had this growing influence of China in particular next door. From 2011, there was an attempt at reform. Things opened up to the West. Western sanctions were relaxed. And the number of people who benefited increased. And we've seen since then the rise of a kind of consumerism, uh, shopping malls, a lot of products that were not accessible to people have become accessible now. And so it's different levels of problems. I mean, one problem is are the deeper problems around conflict and violence and identity and everything else. But you go to Rangoon and you see the birth of, you know, a sort of 21st century consumerism as well. And you kind of wonder, is this the best that we can do? I mean, even if we manage to deal with all of the the other problems, is what we're trying to sort of aspire to, is it just democracy for the sake of consumerism? Or is something else even possible even now at this inflection point in the country's history? You mentioned the relationship with China and the growing sort of relationships between them. And, and that's become ever stronger. What What is the relationship like currently? I think what's really important to understand in understanding the China relationship is that Burma today, as before, is a country where the state and the army only control part of the country. So maybe 80% of the country is controlled by state institutions and by the army. At least 20% of the country is under the sway of over 20 different what we call ethnic armed organizations, basically insurgent armies, and hundreds, perhaps as many as a thousand different militia, almost all of them along a 1,500-mile-long Burma-China border. So many of these insurgent groups or ethnic armed organizations have close ties with China. So part of China's influence comes in through this, not really a back door, but through this big door that's open to China of both trade and Chinese contacts and links with insurgent non-state armies on the Burmese side. So that's one. And the second is just that, you know, whereas Burma has failed in so many different ways to develop economically, China, of course, has been this great economic miracle in a way over these past 20, 30 years. So whereas Burma and China's per capita GDP were more or less the same 30 years ago, China is now seven, eight, nine times richer. And even Yunnan, which is next to Burma, which used to be, or which is one of the poorest parts of China, is now four or five times richer than Burma. So you have the border open, you have, you know, hundreds of different militia, 
You have multi-billion dollar trade, both illicit as well as legal. And then you have just the, the weight, the sheer force of Chinese gravity, of economic gravity next door. And that has had an enormous effect on Burma. So almost all consumer products in Burma now come from China. And most of Burmese exports now, from agricultural exports, minerals, other things, go to China today. And now it's time for a quick break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. You talk a lot in the book about the humanitarian crisis that hits around sort of the early 2000s and how poor people are and, and, and you know, the people who are, who are hungry, they're having one meal a day. I mean, uh, really quite horrifying. And actually also that in terms of health, the country in terms of healthcare ranks so low. Um, what, what, what contributed to that point being so dire and how has that moved on since? I guess it's a mix of things. I mean, I guess, you know, Burma was already going in a, in a bad direction, say, in the 1980s, right? And then that's partly why you had this uprising that was then crushed. And democracy was held out as the miracle cure. And democracy was held out by the West, the UN as well, the international community, as a solution to all of Burma's problems. But Burma, even in the early 1990s, was a country which had experienced decades of conflict that still had dozens of different uh, armed organizations that were non-state in the country. And that was experiencing not just extreme poverty, but also extreme inequality as well. And so I think this was always the missing story. People, I think, didn't appreciate how severe the humanitarian crisis in Burma was and saw the country as this kind of fairy tale of good versus evil. And into that context or into that kind of perspective went sanctions. And I think Western sanctions, UK, US-led sanctions in the 1990s and 2000s were well-meaning because they were meant to kind of pressure, pressurize the, the army into making concessions to, to Aung San Suu Kyi and the democratic opposition. But these were sanctions that were taking place over a country that was as poor as you just mentioned, I mean, with millions of people who were literally living on the edge. And, and I think sanctions helped to push a lot of these people over the edge. So 
I think what we have to remember is that Western sanctions in the in the 90s and 2000s weren't just sort of ordinary targeted sanctions, but they included a kind of almost complete cutoff of aid, even on issues like or or things like aid for people with HIV AIDS in the early 2000s. By the early 2010s, things have turned around and Burma, you describe it as the toast of the world. And people thought this was great transformation was happening. Obviously, now we think, well, that didn't work out. What changed? What went wrong? I think the whole framing of things has been wrong. So I think if you start the story as this kind of good versus evil, generals versus Aung San Suu Kyi sort of fairy tale, then that fairy tale seems to be going well in the early 2010s because there seems to be some sort of democratic opening. And then all of a sudden people hear about 700,000 Muslim refugees fleeing to Bangladesh and people can't really make sense of you know, how these things fit together. And I think what we have to see is one is that the, the bigger story is this story of dire poverty and extreme inequality and an economic system that hasn't changed, a political economy that is more or less the same as it was before. The second is that the changes that came in 2011, 2012 have led to a much freer political environment, but they weren't the result of sanctions. They weren't the result of a grassroots movement. They weren't the result of a democratic revolution. They were pretty much the work of a, of a group of generals and ex-generals who wanted to move to some extent towards a more open government and to some extent a more free political system, but within certain limits. And so it was something that was choreographed in a way from the start. And the second is that, you know, even in 2015 when Aung San Suu Kyi won elections and everyone thought democracy, peace, everything was sort of inevitable at that point, the country was really already on edge because of decades of mismanagement, poverty, underinvestment in education, underinvestment in health, all of the problems that we've been talking about. So I think people didn't appreciate how fragile the country was. And, you know, you take a country with so many different races, ethnic groups, armed groups, illicit industries, and you open up the political environment, that could be a good thing, especially in the medium to, to longer term. But I think people just didn't see how fragile things were, especially because by 2015, we also had not just political freedom, but we had social media and many other things that kind of turbocharged that political environment. You mentioned that sort of idea that it's we see it as baddies versus goodies. And obviously, Aung San Suu Kyi has had in the Western mind a transformation from having been the heroine of this narrative to being very much the baddie, much criticised, or, or at least seen as very, very weak on certain issues. How fair is that criticism? Was it partly that we misunderstood who she was from the beginning? I think it's understandable that people sort of saw her in the 1990s and onwards as, a, as an icon for, for democracy and, and for human rights, mainly because of you know, she she talked about these things in, in speeches she gave to the extent that she was able to give any speeches in the periods when she wasn't under house arrest. But I think there was always a different side to her. And I think that side to her was, you know, she was also her father's daughter. Her father was the founder of the Burmese army. He was the nationalist hero of the 1940s during World War II and immediately afterwards. I think she was always in many ways a Burmese nationalist. She was someone who had very conservative values in many ways. I think she saw herself as someone who want, who was going to lead the sort of Burmese nation in a better direction and finally bring her father's army, which had gone in this wayward direction, back under civilian control and in the first instance under her own control. So she was always, I think, at her core a nationalist figure. And I think, I think people from the outside didn't really appreciate that. And I think since 2015, and especially since the, the Rohingya violence and crisis, that she has kind of evolved more into that person. And whatever part of her had been this sort of human rights icon, I think has very much fallen aside now. Did her own supporters, do they have a different perception of her now, the people who've supported her all those years when she was under house arrest? Or did they always see her more for who she was? I think, yeah, I think more the latter. I think within her party, in the National League for Democracy and in Burmese civil society, there are NGO activists, there are party people who we would consider, or people in the West would consider liberal and and supportive of, of human rights. And some of them are still supportive of her and some of them are still in her party. But I think the vast majority of ordinary people in Burma 
are much more motivated by this this nationalist feeling. And it's a very complicated nationalist feeling. It's not just a kind of ethnic nationalism that hates foreigners or hates Muslims or hates Chinese people. It's a sense of a Burmese people that have been sort of downtrodden for decades in the past under under colonial rule, but then the past 40, 50 years under army rule, that ordinary Burmese people have been left out of the picture, that they haven't benefited because of this economic system, that outsiders and and then outsiders are portrayed as as foreigners, as Muslims, as Chinese, as corrupt army officials who come in, corrupt bureaucrats, that all of these people are sort of preyed on ordinary Burmese people and that Aung San Suu Kyi will somehow deliver them to this better place and that Burma will become a much better, stronger, democratic country, but a democratic country that belongs to the Burmese race and the Burmese people. The Rohingya crisis, what were the catalysts that led to that happening? Because in the West, the way it was portrayed, we gave very little, well, relatively little attention to Burma. And then suddenly this enormous crisis crisis was was playing out. People were fleeing to Bangladesh with horrific accounts of, of rape and murder and massacres. But what were the catalysts that led up to it that perhaps we haven't understood in the West? You know, in a way... I mean, in, in one way, one can go back, you know, hundreds of years, and in other ways, one can just go back a couple of years. So it depends on, you know, it depends a little bit on on one's perspective, and it's still hard to know exactly why the violence became as extreme as it did and took on the scale and the proportions that it did in 2017, and in, in particular. But I, I think, I mean, maybe the best way to think about it is that this is a place where. Over centuries, it was it was sparsely populated. There were people who were probably both Muslims and 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 Buddhist people going back and forth. It wasn't really under one particular king or or kingdom. And then under British rule, you had people who then became categorized as belonging to one race or another, one religion or another. The countryside sort of filled out. Immigrants did come from from Bengal into this region, but there were also indigenous Muslim communities there as well. And in the 1920s and 30s, as in other parts of Burma, there were tensions then between these different communities. And with the Depression, things got worse. In World War II, the British armed the Muslim community, the Japanese armed the Arakanese Buddhists. Thousands of people were killed. And a lot of these very bitter memories, I think, in both communities go back to the Second World War. Under the army regimes in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, absolutely nothing was done to try to reconcile these communities, to improve their education. So you had a part of, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world, one of the poorest parts of one of the poorest countries in the world, become poor still generation after generation. So both communities became not just poor, but less educated, more hopeless. A couple of different times in 1978 and 1991, there were similar kind of crackdowns, violent crackdowns by the army on the Muslim community there who then fled to Bangladesh, but then were later allowed to come back. What happened this time was that in 2012, just as the kind of democracy opening was first taking place in, in the main part of the country, communal riots broke out there. And exactly why they broke out, who instigated them, who manipulated them, no one knows. It's possible that they started off on their own, but then they were manipulated and, and, and fueled from the outside. And over 100,000 people, mostly Muslims, were displaced as a result. And that's when I think that the, the whole plight of, of the Rohingya in particular kind of came into the international consciousness at that time. You had many people, Rohingya Muslims, fleeing by boat to Malaysia in search of jobs in 2015. But the situation was very bleak. I think many of them thought in 2015 when Aung San Suu Kyi was elected that perhaps their 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 situation might improve, but then I think they lost hope that that would happen. Aung San Suu Kyi appointed Kofi Annan to look at the situation and make Advice. So I think she actually in the beginning in 2015-16 did want to find the right solution. But then the, the specific trigger of the violence was the sudden rise in 2016, not the rise, but the creation in 2016 of this new Rohingya insurgency, the Arakan Rohingya Solidarity Army. And that army, which is sort of a ragtag force in the, in the beginning, began to attack government forces. That led to a refugee exodus. They then mobilized on a slightly larger scale and in 2017 attacked 30 police stations and an army base overnight. And that gave the army the reason that they needed 
for a massive crackdown, attacking these villages and in many of these villages killing civilians as well. So from the government's point of view, the cause is ARSA, this Rohingya insurgency, and the army simply overstepped their mark in terms of responding. But if you go back, there's a long history of discrimination of this particular people culminating in in these past seven, eight years. And how have Rohingya refugees been received, so particularly in Bangladesh, but elsewhere? I think very few are elsewhere. I mean, there's a long history of of a couple of decades of of people from that part of the country trying to make their way to Malaysia and elsewhere in search of jobs, as well as some refugees who've been in Bangladesh for a long time. I think, given how poor Bangladesh is as well, I mean, hosting seven, eight hundred thousand refugees is not easy. There's been a huge amount of international support, but it's not a sustainable situation. And I think what we have to remember, especially about the the people in those camps, is that nearly half are children and almost none of them are receiving anything like a, a proper education. That's true actually on the on the Burmese side as well. A lot of kids are not receiving an education. But I think, you know, we, as refugees are particularly vulnerable and I think it's extremely unlikely that most of them will be able to come back uh, to Burma anytime soon. What, you know, is there any hope of that? And, and, a better life for those people because quite clearly that is not any life for anyone, let alone a child to grow up in. I think it's so difficult because I think, I mean, on the one hand, I think there is uh, probably a, a, a genuine desire by some people in the Burmese government to have a lot of these refugees come back if for no other reason than to prove that there wasn't a deliberate policy of genocide or ethnic cleansing. But, you know, Burma is a place where there are still many other conflicts and over 100,000 people have been displaced in other armed conflicts in the country since 2017. Even in in Arakan or in Rakhine State, the area from which the Rohingya refugees have left, there's a whole new insurgency, the Arakan Army, which is an insurgency or insurrection of the Buddhist Arakanese or Rakhine minority who are also of that area who have their own extreme and severe grievances against the Burmese state, who've organized this new insurgency, which has grown from a few hundred men to six, 7,000 well-armed fighters. And there's intense fighting in the country as we speak, and tens of thousands of people displaced. So this is not a country where the Rohingya exodus is the only problem, but it's a whole set of interconnected problems. And I just don't see... It's very difficult, let me say, this maybe is a way to think about it. It's very difficult to see how a, a way to improve the situation of Rohingya people, whether refugees or people who are still in the country, that doesn't involve changing the country as a whole. You mentioned that there's fighting now, and that has had very little attention, I would say, in, in the Western media. Why do you think that is? I mean, the Rohingya crisis, because of the scale of it and the brutality of it, clearly that did get it Western attention, and rightly so. But but generally speaking, we, we don't talk much about Burma anymore again. I think it's it's partly just because, you know, with the with the Rohingya refugee exodus, the people were there. They were there and it was easy to, to, to meet them and to interview them and to get their stories. Whereas in the areas where the conflicts are happening now and where people are being displaced, these are largely inaccessible to at least outside journalists. And then it's us I think the complexity of the issue. I think for most people you know, the idea, the old idea of generals versus Aung San Suu Kyi was easy to understand. Uh, sudden democratic opening was easy to understand. Then all of a sudden, you know, this in this new opening, ordinary people or the army seem to be turning against the Muslim community and then you have this exodus. I think that people can understand. But then the rest of it, with again, dozens of other insurgencies and so many other political dynamics at play, I think that just becomes too complex for for many outside readers and observers. What are the warnings that we should take from Burma? Because you've said that lots of the elements that have led to the society it is now come from it having some of the symptoms that we seem to have now 100 years ago. What are the warnings to take from well, that? Well, I mean, in some ways, obviously, you know, Burma is a different context and a different situation. It's happening in a 21st century context where, you know, social media and, and the rise of China and all these things are, are very new. But at the same time, I guess, you know, Burma is this example of a place where there was an understandable nationalist reaction to a sense of unfairness that was felt by ordinary people against globalization, as we would call it today, and the impact of migration. And that came around or that consolidated around a 
a certain nationalist narrative and a, and a desire to kind of right wrongs for ordinary people who had suffered as a result. But that led directly into this kind of nativist thinking and us against them thinking in a mentality that we haven't been able to shake off, you know, for a hundred years now. And that has led to this intellectual poverty, but it's also led very directly to the impoverishment, the material impoverishment of the country relative to to all of our neighbors. And so I think, I guess, the warning in a way is that, you know, once you start going down this this track, it's sometimes very difficult to reverse course. And that's at least the lesson of Burma. It's been a hundred years going in this direction. And now in this more democratic context, it's probably going to be even more hard to to reverse course because it's not something that's just felt by an elite. It's felt by the vast majority of people. It also has new problems coming and one of them will be climate change. It is expected to be one of the five worst countries affected by climate change. First of all, why is it, why would is it likely to be so badly affected? Obviously, we tend to hear of Bangladesh being the country that would be really devastatingly affected because obviously... It's very low-lying. It's, it's very low-lying, exactly. Why will Burma be so hard hit and on what consequences might that have? I'm asking you to speculate quite trickily there. Yeah, I mean, partly it's it's like Bangladesh in the sense that part of the country, like Bangladesh, is very low-lying. So we have a coastline and a delta and, and home to not as many people as in Bangladesh, but to 10, 15 million people who would face catastrophe as sea levels rise significantly over the next 10, 20 years. The second is that in the center of Burma, the heartland, the ethnic Burmese heartland is um, semi-desert. It's very dry. And so changes in rainfall patterns, extreme heat um, is already starting to to drive people out of that area. We don't know if, exactly if it's the result of global climate change or, or something else. But because of drought over these past several years, because of extreme heat, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of the poorest people have been moving east into upland areas bordering with Thailand. Some have tried to migrate to Thailand itself. And I guess the other big impact will be extreme weather events. I mean, this is a country which in 2008, uh, because of Cyclone Nargis, which is a big cyclone over the Bay of Bengal, that killed 140,000 people in a single night. And so because the country is so poor, the infrastructure is not there, and we have these low-lying areas, um, if we have extreme weather events like Cyclone Nargis again, you know, maybe the country's a little bit more prepared now, but um, still the consequences could be could be terrible. So, you know, these are all things that may affect other countries in South and Southeast Asia as well. But it's the poverty of the country, the lack of state institutions, the weakness of state institutions, which means that all of these things are going to hit Burma in a catastrophic way in, in the medium term. How much investment and, and also aid are coming into the country currently in in 2020. I mean, the country's received much more aid now than it did, say, 10, 15 years ago under military rules. So some of that has been questioned because of, of the violence against the Rohingya. But in general, it's receiving much more aid from, from the UK, from the US, from, from international institutions like the World Bank, as well as from neighboring countries, Japan, China as well. There is more foreign investment or there has been more foreign investment over these past several years. So in Burma, for instance, you know, a thousand, uh, sorry, 10 years ago, um, a SIM card cost a thousand dollars. Today, a SIM card is less than a, a dollar because of huge investment, foreign investment in telecoms. Burma has now gone from maybe 1% phone, mobile phone penetration to close to 100% mobile phone penetration and some of the fastest internet speeds in, in Asia. So there has been certain changes because of investment as well as aid and things that have been you know, good for ordinary people as well. But all of that sits alongside all these really deep you know, sort of structural problems that still explode into, into, into violence and usually into violence along racial and ethnic lines. And what role does social media play there? Because I know there has been some scrutiny of the role of social media during the Rohingya crisis. It's important to both to kind of be careful on this because on the one hand, yes, so we've had social media, we've had, uh, this is basically since 2013, 2014 when most people went online for the first time. Facebook is the only platform really in the country. So people who had no news before now get all of their news on, on Facebook. And so it's kind of easy to then draw a line and say it's because of that that you know Burma had this sudden explosion in kind of racial, ethnic, religious violence and and targeting the Rohingya in particular. But actually, you know, most of the violence or violence in the past happened before Facebook. 
And the violence that happened in 2017 that drove people across the border wasn't the result of communal violence. It wasn't the result of ordinary people you know, going on Facebook, saying things, and then mobs of people attacking their neighbors. It was a result of an insurgency and a counterinsurgency operation that then targeted villages in which hundreds of civilians were then killed. I guess what I'm saying is that pretty much what happened in 2016, 2017 could have happened without social media or Facebook. So I'm not sure that there's a direct causal connection. I think where there's a connection is that there is a lot of hate speech on social media um, directed by different groups against other groups. But Facebook at the same time, I guess it has to be said to be fair, is that it's also used as a mobilizing tool for many different civil society groups, environmental campaigners, human rights campaigners, and others. So I don't think it's a it's a universally bad thing. And I think the direct causal connection, I think, has to be thought through a little bit more. And what are the reasons, if there are some, for being hopeful? Are there any signs of really positive movements? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the terrible thing has been the, 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 the flight of the 700,000 refugees into, into Bangladesh and the, and the violence that, that caused that. But then if you look at the rest of the picture, in many ways, Burma is a better place than 10 years ago. It's a far freer place. It's not a democracy. It's kind of a halfway house to democracy, but it's much freer. There's no media restrictions. There's self-censorship in the media because there's fear of, of possible repercussions. But the internet is completely free. So we are in a freer political society than any time in 50 years. We will have elections again this year, which will likely be relatively free and fair elections, freer and fairer than probably any elections in our immediate neighborhood except for India. And you have a young generation that thousands of whom have come back from abroad, schooling, university abroad, who desperately want to catch up with the rest of the of the world and with the rest of, of Asia. And Burma is such a naturally rich country in terms of natural resources, and it sits next to India as well as China, as well as Southeast Asian countries. So there's tremendous economic potential, but they have to get over, people have to get over these deep-seated issues around identity first. The nativist kind of ethno-nationalist ideology that drives a lot of the political landscape and has to come around a new economic agenda that tackles these issues of inequality that have been um, so terrible for so many people over these last 25 years and has to factor in the climate change to come. So it's a country of extremes, both in terms of potential and in terms of the things that or the challenges that it's going to have to face over these coming years. Thank you very much. Thank you.